Hello and welcome to Cumber Baptist Church Podcast. The following is taken from our evening service, Sunday 8th of September, 2019. This evening we are joined by Pastor Clifford Morrison, who takes his reading from John, chapter 17, verses 1 to 7, and brings us a message entitled, This is Our God. I want to begin a series of studies entitled, This is Our God. And I would invite you to come with me to John's Gospel, chapter 17, and we'll read the first five verses. John chapter 17, the first five verses, beginning at verse 1, and this is the word of the Lord. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Thanks be to God for his word. Some people like the preacher to have a text. And if you want my text this evening, you will find it in the third verse that we've just read. Now, this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. There's an old fable about six blind men from birth who lived in India. And one day, one day they decided to visit a nearby palace. When they arrived, an elephant was standing in the courtyard. The first blind man touched the side of the elephant and said, An elephant is like a wall. The second blind man touched the trunk of the elephant and said, An elephant is like a snake. The third man touched the tusk and said, An elephant is like a spear. The fourth man touched the leg of the elephant and said, An elephant is like a tree. The fifth man touched the ear of the elephant and said, An elephant is like a fan. And the sixth man touched the tail and said, An elephant Is like a rope. Because each blind man touched only one part of the elephant, none of them could agree on what an elephant was really like. I want you to bring that analogy into the spiritual realm. Because many people tonight have misconceptions about what God or who God is really like. And believing wrong things about God is a serious matter because it is idolatry. Contrary to popular belief, idolatry is more than bowing down to a small figure or worshipping in a pagan temple. According to the teaching of the Bible, it is thinking anything about God that isn't true and attempting to transform him into something that he isn't. And God himself pointed out the 
fallacy of idolatry, saying of men, you thought I was altogether like you. We read that in Psalm 50 and verse 21. And so we must be careful not to think of God in our terms or entertain thoughts that are unworthy of him. And it's very easy uh, to do that. That can be the case with the Christian as well as the non-Christian. Because we are finite beings, we tend to perceive the infinite in the light of our own limitations. And even though the Bible presents truth in language and thoughts that accommodate our human understanding, it also encourages us to reach beyond our limitations and think exalted thoughts about God. In other words, we must bring our minds and our wills and our actions under the scrutiny of Holy Scripture. You see, too many try to put God in a box. And the problem is this, their box is incredibly small. And we tend to let our culture rather than our creator determine what we value. And those values influence our thoughts about God and shape the way we relate to him in our daily experience. And so the only way to know what God is like is to discover what he has revealed about himself in the scriptures of truth. I was speaking at the Lord's table this morning about the love of God and about Paul's prayer for the Christians in Ephesus to know the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of God. And Paul was really telling these people, as I intimated this morning, to measure the immeasurable, uh, to reach the unreachable. And so it is with knowing God. One of Job's friends got it right in his misdirected rebuke against Job. He asked the question in Job chapter 11, Can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than the heavens. What can you do? They are deeper than the depths of the grave. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and wider than the sea. That's why David again and again in his Psalms focuses our attention on the greatness of God. And that's why we read tonight from Psalm 145 for it's a psalm that is bursting with the greatness of God. At the very beginning of the psalm, David says, Great is the Lord, and greatly do we praise, or most worthy of praise, his greatness none can fathom. And the Lord Jesus taught his disciples this great truth. He said, To know this God is to have eternal life. You see, eternal life is not just something to be enjoyed in the hereafter. It is something to be experienced in the here and now. It's a quality of life that flows from knowing God. Paul, on several occasions, has to remind the Christians about the danger of setting their affections on things below. Setting our affections on the things that we can handle and taste. The danger of exchanging the eternal for the temporal. To buy into a world that is in the process of decaying at the cost of knowing God. And God rebukes us for that. 
Listen to how Jeremiah puts it. He says, this is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong of his strength or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast about this that he understands and knows me. Here's a question that's worth pondering tonight. What does the Almighty delight in? What pleases the heart of God, our Creator? Well, it's not boasting of worldly wisdom or human endeavor or material gain. God delights in that we know Him. In his book, A Heart for God, Sinclair Ferguson writes as follows, What do you and I boast about? What subject of our conversation most arouses us and fills our hearts? Do we consider knowing God to be the greatest treasure in the world and by far our greatest privilege? If not, we are but pygmies in the world of the Spirit. We have sold our Christian birthright for a mess of pottage and our true Christian experience will be superficial, inadequate, and tragically out of focus. Listen to what David says. He says in Psalm 63, O God, you are my God. Earnestly will I seek you. He says, my soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Alas, there are many tonight who are blinded by the God of this world. Satan himself, the deceiver, the destroyer. And through his evil workings, too many have a faulty picture of God. A sin-biased view of the Almighty. They see him no more than a, a resident detective. They see him as a, a parental hangover or as a grand old doting individual. It's important that we know God, that we know the God of the Bible, not the God of humanology. If our thinking about God isn't cracked, then everything else isn't cracked. The Bible says about God's servant, they that know their God shall be strong and do great exploits. And we're not free to make up our own story about God. We're not at liberty to write our own script. The word of truth has already been declared and revealed in the Scriptures. And so we must open our Bible. We must read the Word of God. The preaching of the Bible must be central to all our coming together to worship God and to praise God. Sometimes in certain gatherings, much emphasis is placed on praise and worship. And then someone will say, if we have any time left, we'll just bring a little word at the end. The preaching of the word must have prime place because it's a vital part of our worship of God. And when we open the Bible, what do we discover 
we discover that God is not a thing, that God is not an it, that God is not a power or an influence. He is living. He is the living God who thinks and who works and who feels. A God who can be grieved or a God who can be pleased. A God who can be dishonored or a God who can be honored. A God who desires glory for he alone is worthy of it. What is God like? Well, in Isaiah, we find God challenging us on that question. The prophet says, to whom will you compare me? To whom will you count me equal? To whom will you liken me that we may be compared? The psalmist does the very same thing. He says, for who in the skies above can compare with the Lord? Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings. And on the odd occasion, when I hear God's name taken in vain, when I read of something that belittles the Almighty, my heart sinks within me. For I say concerning those who have engaged in such behavior, little do they know about the one who they have been trying to undermine and mock. I say again tonight, we must go to the place where God has revealed himself, the Bible. And there we find truth that leaves us in no doubt as to who God really is. Sometimes we refer to it as the attributes of God. And the simple definition of an attribute is, an attribute is anything that God has chosen to tell us about himself. God tells us that he is holy. We're told this truth more than anything else in Scripture, right throughout the Psalms. Flowing from Genesis to Revelation, there is this constant thread. God is holy. He is free from all sin and evil. In him there is absolute perfection. And this truth affects every other truth. God's love is a holy love. God's justice is a holy justice. God's wrath is a holy wrath. And God cannot do anything that is not holy. And the salvation that he alone provides is a holy salvation. There is no fault or blemish in it. Therefore, there is no possibility of it failing. Sometimes in the course of personal conversation, I will try to interest the person I'm talking to about spiritual things, and they'll say something like this, Yeah, I tried that, but it didn't work. Let me say this this evening. Whatever they tried was not salvation. For salvation works. Salvation comes from a holy God. Salvation has God's perfection stamped over it from beginning to end. Our God is a holy God. Our God is a sovereign God. This means the absolute rule and authority over all his creation belongs to him. He has the power to carry out his will and purposes. 
He is no fairy tale king who can only look on helplessly as his enemies triumph. He is omnipotent, all powerful. He is omniscient, has all knowledge. He is omnipresent. He's in all places. God is here. And that makes our coming together tonight so significant. That we're not just in the company of one another. We're not just in a building that has been set aside for the praise and the worship of God. But we are in the very presence of the eternal God. Because he is sovereign, he can do what he likes, when he likes, how he likes, and with whom he likes. This God stands alone, says Job. And who can oppose him? He does whatever he pleases. The writer says, you, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. The writer in the chronicle says this, Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. He is the God of providence. He always works in the lives of his people so that nothing happens to us by chance or luck. He is the God who upholds, guides, and governs all our circumstances. Through all the changing scenes of life, in trouble or in joy, God is sovereign. And the story of the Bible emphasizes this sovereignty again and again. You remember the story of Joseph when he finally revealed his true identity to his brethren in Egypt. They were startled and Joseph said, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. I confess tonight without any hesitancy, sometimes it is difficult to see this. But Paul tells us that God works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. It was belief in this great truth about God that brought peace and contentment to Paul even in difficult times. He's a holy God. He's a sovereign God. He's the God of providence. He's a good God. How often Satan whispers evil doubt into our minds to undermine the goodness of God. But he is kind. He is generous. He is tender-hearted. He is full of sympathy. Again, the psalmist testifies to that in this psalm that we have read this evening. There is nothing harsh or unreasonable about him. God's goodness is not weakness. God's goodness is not softness. He's not some soft touch that people can take advantage of. And if you're a Christian tonight, because of the goodness of God, you can rely on him. In every high and stormy gale, the anchor holds within the veil. We can trust him and know that whatever the circumstances may be, God will use them for our good 
and for his eternal glory. And of course, God is love. If God was not love, there would be no hope for any of us tonight. And this love that we're thinking of is a divine love. It's not a sloppy, sentimental thing, but a love that acts on behalf of its recipients. And Paul again feeds our minds with this great truth. In Romans chapter 5, just at the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man some might possibly dare to die. But God, but God, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we stood amidst the throng that said, Away with him, crucify him. We will not have this man to rule over us. God loved us. The old hymn puts it so well. God loved the world of sinners lost and ruined by the fall. Salvation, full at highest cost, he offers free to all. Oh, twas love, twas wondrous love, the love of God to me. It brought my Savior from above to die on Calvary. God's love is undeserved love. God's love is unsought love. John, the apostle of love, writes in his first letter, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What does that mean? It means that he endured the wrath of God on our behalf. It means that he experienced all of God's wrath being outpoured at Calvary when he died for us. What love? It's unsought love. It's unimaginable love. John says, How great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called the children of God. You know, there are many other truths about God that the Bible reveals to us, and we shall consider them in the Sunday evenings ahead in the will of God, but for the moment these are enough to lay the foundation of all that is to follow. God loves us. As you put your head on the pillow tonight, remember this, that God loves you. If you reject Christ tonight, remember you're rejecting someone who loves you more than anyone else could ever love you. It's an undeserved love. It's an unsought love. It's an unimaginable love. We cannot fully comprehend this triune God, but many there are who know that he is a father who loves them, a son who died for them, and a spirit who comforts them. You know, our salvation was never an afterthought because the father who loved us planned our salvation. The Son who loved us purchased our salvation. The Spirit who loved us performed our salvation. The triune God calls us tonight to himself. He calls us to leave our sin, to turn from all ideas that mislead us into thinking that somehow or other we do not need God's love, we do not need God's grace to court the idea that we're all right the way we are, 
that we've done no one any harm. God calls us to run to him, to flee to him. God tells us not to rest until we have rested in all that he accomplished through his wounds on the cross. John says this is eternal life. He's recording the words of Jesus. It's hard to find someone today who's really telling the truth. Because of modern technology, even the camera can lie. It's hard to find the truth. Here's the truth tonight. Here is the truth coming from the truth incarnate, Jesus Christ himself. He says, this is eternal life, that you might know the only true God. Eternal life. That's a a theme that occurs again and again in John's gospel at least 17 times. Eternal life is God's free gift to those who believe in his Son. And John tells us what it means to believe at the very beginning of his gospel. He says, to many as receive him. Now maybe you're like me tonight. I never remember a time in my life when I didn't believe. I believed that there was a God. I believed what I was taught, that God created the heavens and the earth. I believed that there was a baby born in a manger to a virgin girl called Mary. I believed the parables that I grew up to learn and the miracles that I grew up to understand. I believed that there was a place called Calvary where Jesus died. I believed that there was a tomb in which the body of Jesus was laid and on the third day he rose again. I believed that. I believe that 40 days later he ascended to heaven where he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And I believed for many years that one day at God's command Jesus would return again. But for 14 and a half years in my life I never received him. Until the Spirit of God dawned in my mind that to believe is to receive. And to many as received him, the gift, to them he gave the right to become the sons of God. I'm not asking you tonight, do you believe? Because I believe tonight all of you believe. I don't believe that you would go out into the street. I don't believe that you would go into your work or into your office or into your circle of friends tomorrow and say, I don't believe that there is a God. I think you would identify yourself with the one who said, behind a creation there's a creator, behind a design there's a designer, behind a plan there's a planner. But I'm asking you tonight, have you received? Have you received eternal life? Do you know? And the word know has the most intimate associations. In some cases, it's used in some of the translations to indicate a one flesh relationship between a husband and a wife. It's an intimate word. 
Do you know God tonight? Can you lift your heart to heaven and say, My Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is eternal life, says Jesus, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Let's pray. Let's just take a moment of quietness and stillness as we reflect upon what we have been thinking about this evening. I don't know what God is saying to you, but whatever he asks you to do tonight, respond with a humble, obedient heart. And to do that is to experience his grace, his mercy, his love, his peace. Father in heaven, write your word in all our hearts tonight. And help us, O God, if we've never done it before, to confess Jesus Christ to be our Savior, our Lord, our Counselor, our Friend our guardian, our guide, for Jesus' sake. Amen.